It's like the time change happened just on Sunday. It's like you get an extra hour just for at least one day of the week, and I'll take it. That's fantastic. I'll take every hour uh, I can get. I'm so glad that you're here. It's great to get back into the book of Genesis. And let me tell you a quick story. I actually looked into this this week, and it ties in, I think, in theme to where we're going in our text this morning, ironically. Get this. In 1519, that's a while ago, 500 years ago, this guy Hernan Cortez left Spain with multiple boats. I, I grabbed a couple pictures, a boat probably like this one, you know, um, and landed. This guy landed in Veracruz, now known as Mexico, to overthrow the Aztecs and basically take hold of the vast treasures of gold, silver, if they won. But Cortez landed with 600 guys. I don't know how many boats, but he quickly realized we don't have armor like they do. We don't have armor to protect us, unlike our Aztec counterparts. And I don't know if it, at that moment, out of fear, perhaps welling in the hearts of his men that would cause him to possibly get in those boats and turn back, he gave an order that was bold. Some would say foolish. I'm sure some scared, this order scared many uh, to death. He gave this order, burn the boats. Burn the boats. Burn all the boats. I don't know if it looked like that, but I, I found a picture of, I mean, how many ships he had, he lights them all on fire. It was simple, creative, thought-provoking, daring. And get what, get this, it worked. Like something about closing off the past, something about closing off all options of escape, of going back to what we had before, solidified in their hearts a courage and a resolve, just a steely-eyed determination to move forward. He burned the boats, and he had his eyes fixed on what was ahead of them. All of them did. Well, we're turning to Genesis 23 to find kind of our main character, Abraham, in a very low place in his life. Get this, though he is so far from his home country that he came from so many years ago, he has relatively few loved ones, and now we find him at a very low place probably in his life as he holds in his arms his dead wife. And like Cortez, he is about to do something that shows his eyes are on the future. Like Cortez, he is about to make a bold statement, even in how he deals with this situation, that shows the world, I am moving forward in faith. And this chapter, which I thought had maybe nothing for me, had nothing for us when at first read, is becoming a place that is motivating me to live differently with my hope also set on the future. So get this. Open up to Genesis 23. If you've uh, got a Bible or a electronic version called your phone. I'm just going to read these first couple verses. Listen to what it says. Genesis 23, 1 and 2 says this. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These are all the years of her life. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. 
and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 127 years. Wow. She lived a long time. She dies at 127. And, and if you're keeping track of dates and we're trying to follow the math around the book of Genesis, Abraham's 10 years older. Okay, so he's 137 at the time that his wife dies. And get this. He will then go on to live another 40 years without her. Long lives going on back then in some of these characters. At this point, Isaac, that long-promised son of theirs, the only son is now 37. Just to put it into perspective. So you've got a 137-year-old man holding his, his dead bride. He's got one son. What do you do? Now, I can't even imagine. Married probably for around 100 years. Honestly, if they got married kind of in their early 20s, 100 years. I found myself looking into this, uh, like, who's, who's been married the longest? And I came across the story of a couple, actually, until very recently, they were the Guinness Book World Record holders. Get this. Their names are, I'll do my best, Waldramina Quinteras and the husband, Cesar Mora. Now, they lived in Quito, Ecuador, and they were married before the pandemic led him into a depression and hospitalization and to his death. They had been married 79 years. If you add up the combined age of their lives, both of them ha having lived over 100, 215 years of life they've lived. Shoot, that's a long time. This couple say that the, the, the two missed this. They missed the life they had before the confinement brought on by the pandemic when family gatherings and hugs weren't a threat. And, and as a result, like I said, Cesar fell into a depression, was hospitalized. But Waldramina, this, this woman says, she remembers her husband as a poet who dedicated the best love verses to her and pampered her at all times. They, they were married in February 17th of 1941. They had five children, nine grandchildren, 22 great-grandchildren, and 10 more great-great-grandchildren, like 46 descendants just from this one miracle, like immediate descendants. Can you imagine that? But get this. Abraham and Sarah made them look like newlyweds. <laughs> I mean, they were married 79 years, this one world record-holding couple Probably, again, if married in the early, their early 20s, over 100 years of marriage, and now, just consider Sarah dying after 100 years of marriage and being in a land far from your home. She didn't start where she ended. In fact, she is a long, long way from where she began. And she has... Like, no extended family around her. This is one of the hardest parts of, like, students who go to college away from home or moving away from home, you get married, maybe move away from home. It's one of the hardest things. It's like, my, my kids aren't going to grow up knowing they're fill-in-the-blanks. She would grow up away from so many and not be like the Guinness Book world record holders who have, like, 46 descendants down the line. No, 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 just, just one. And took a long time to get him. 90, and then she dies. By all measuring, it would seem in our ways of measuring things, perhaps she had wasted her life as she dies a long way from family in a foreign land. And now, Abraham, imagine this, this 137-year-old guy, so the oldest person you've ever seen, and they're holding 
their dead bride. What do you do? They're just in this place. Well, what Abraham did next says everything about his hope in the future, and I didn't catch it when I first read it. Jump back with me into the account of Genesis 21. I'm going to start, I'm sorry, chapter 23. I'm going to start in verse 3. The Bible says, when Abraham got up from beside his dead wife, he spoke to the Hethites, and he said, I am an alien residing among you. Give me burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. The Hethites replied to Abraham, listen, listen to us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our finest burial place. None of us will withhold from you his burial place for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down to the Hethites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you're willing for me to bury my dead, uh, listen to me and ask Ephron, son of Zophar, on my behalf to give me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him. It is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as burial property. Ephron was sitting among the Hethites. So in the hearing of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city, Ephron the Hethite answered Abraham, no, my Lord, listen to me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the sight of my people, bury your dead. Abraham bowed down to the people of the land and said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, listen to me, if you please, let me pay the price of the field, accept it from me and let me bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham and said to him, my Lord, listen to me, land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed with Ephron and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had agreed to in the hearing of the Hethites, 400 standards shekels of silver. So Ephron's field at Machpelah near Mamre, the field with its cave and all the trees, anywhere within the boundaries of the field became Abraham's possession in the sight of the Hethites who came to the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave at the field at Machpelah near Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field with this cave passed from Hethites to Abraham as burial property. So here they are. The guy with his wife goes to this city, and of course it's at the gate. That's where they would often do transactions like that, at the gate. And there's some Bedouin bargaining there. I don't know if you caught that. Oh, hey, just take it for yourself. What's that to me? Well, you know, how about this much? Oh, and just take this. They go back and forth. He was never giving it to him, right? He always knew he was going to charge him. Again, Abraham just wanted the cave. That's all he needed. This guy's sneaky. He's trying to put the field in there. Oh, the field and the cave costs this much. And it's actually, he pays quite a bit for it, but they banter back and forth. And I don't know if you've been overseas, but this is like standard fare. It never costs what it says. That's where you begin the argument, you know? And it's just back and forth, back and forth. And at the end of it, it says that the field passed from the Hethites to Abram as burial property. Now look. How did they view Abraham? They said to Abraham early on, this is how they recognized him, you are a prince of God among us. Wow, I've never been called that. <laughs> you know, you're a prince of God. Like somehow these Hethites, these just foreigners to the people of God recognized the blessing of God on this guy's life. In fact, the Hethites saw it and it seems like everyone in the book of Genesis sees it. Do you remember Abimelech? The guy, the very man that Abraham had lied to about his wife, oh, she's my sister, like that guy, 
even he would say, get this, it's in Genesis 21, 22. I just want to show you a couple of these passages. It'll be up on the screen. Even Abimelech said, God is with you in everything you do. Even though he had just been lied to, he recognizes, God is with you. I know it. Because the Hethites saw the blessing of God on his life. Abimelech saw the blessing of God on his life. He conquered all these kings. And then even after conquering kings back in Genesis 14, I don't know if you remember this, Melchizedek, the mystery man, the priest and the king comes on out and says this to him, Genesis 14. He says, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who's handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Look, like, Cover to cover in the book of Abraham, if it had, in the book of Genesis, if it had covers. I mean, it was like, the guy's blessed. Blessed by God, blessed by God, blessed by God. He didn't earn it. He wasn't that great of a guy. I mean, he blew it a lot. He was still blessed by God. The blessing of God was on his life. And don't we remember that God had promised that? This was none other than the fulfillment of God's promise. Look back with me at Genesis 12. It'll, it'll be on the screen. I just want you to see how Genesis is beginning to tie together, even in this story. Genesis 12, a long time ago, when Abram had not left for the journey, the Lord said to him, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Look, Abraham had done that. He had left. He had obeyed God. He did go to the land, and he was beginning to walk in the blessing of God. That's what it's like for those who obey God. That is what it's like. You're scared. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. God's calling you to do things. You're like, you are kidding me, God. I don't know about that. With, 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 with dollars, with this person, with these relationships, okay, I'm taking a step towards you. The blessing of God's right on the other side of that. But it takes faith. It takes courage to move that way, and Abraham had done it. In that very promise, God said, three things I'm going to bless you with, I'm, or this is going to be the promise. Abraham's three blessings are this, <laughs> land, descendants, and then just that blessing. Now, let me take these in reverse order for just a second. That blessing, I mean, I've already pointed that out. The Hethites saw it, Abimelech saw it. Everyone saw God's blessing on this guy's life. But I just want to pause. Like, pause on Abraham's life to consider your life if you follow Jesus. In a room this size, it would be highly unlikely that I'm talking to everyone. But many of you follow Jesus Christ. You've surrendered your life to him. Your faith is in him. And your whole future and your eternity is bound up in him. Just pause long enough to consider the blessings of God in your life right now. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1.3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's a long run-on sentence. It goes through the end of the chapter. But just get this. The blessing of God was on this guy's life, Abraham, but consider the blessings on your life. Look, the Bible says that God chose us in him and has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. I just want us to pause long enough to consider them. Forgiveness. I'm free from all the guilt I felt, from all the bad things I did and anything I could ever do. Free forgiveness. 
I was reading the Psalms as I was driving across the state this morning. We got to do this over, like this weekend away with the girls celebrating them. And Josiah and I came back early. We're just reading Psalm 51. Oh, the blessing of being forgiven by God. The one who sins aren't counted against them. That's ours in Christ. Forgiveness, freedom from sin. I'm not only free from like the penalty of sin, the judgment of God. I'm not only free from that, I'm free from the power of sin. Oh, to be a Christ follower and to be able to say no to sin. I could never do that before I knew Jesus. I was just enslaved by lust. I guarantee you if internet porn had been a big deal then, I would have been clicking away because my life was just captured by sin. But in Jesus, there is power to break the bonds of sin. We don't have to be slaves of sin. What a blessing it is to walk free to walk free of being controlled and then free from even the future judgment of sin. Oh, all of that, all of that is ours in Christ. Provision, God will provide for me. I don't always know when, I don't always know how. God always provides. Isn't that amazing? You never have to worry anymore. Christ follower, you don't have to worry about, oh my word, what am I gonna eat tomorrow? How am I gonna provide? God always provides for his children. He does. He who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? You kidding me? Jesus is given to us. Doesn't he care about your next meal? Jesus, your next meal? Rent? Like God has us covered. We're provided for. Oh, the blessings of ours in Christ, joy and delight, and greater than I could find another person. My marriage, it's better than maybe it's ever been. Jesus is still better. My kids, I am living a dream right now. My kids loving Jesus, like they are literally like my best friends. Jesus is better. I am telling you, Jesus has blessed me, has blessed us richly. It is ours in Christ. But get this, not just for this life are we blessed. Think of the future blessing coming our way. This other verse in Ephesians, let me just read this. It boggles the mind if you'll slow down on it. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 6, and God raised us up with Christ. That points to our resurrection. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So when you put your faith in Christ, it's like you are, you are part of who Jesus is. It's, a, it's as good as done. You've been raised up in the heavenly realms. But get this, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let me pause for a second. God has not only shown us grace and blessing in Christ if you've followed him, not just in this lifetime, but oh, think of the life to come. It is true about heaven, no more tears, no more pain. I know some of you who have gone through tremendous physical pain, who cannot see, the, the report keeps coming back, or for your parent, and it's just like the grief and the pain of losing loved ones. Not only, not only will it be the absence of pain and tears and grief and the things that make this life so hard at times, but get this, there will be in the coming ages incomparable demonstrations of the richness of God's grace. Ages, plural. 
There will be ages upon ages in eternity. If you have some anemic, pathetic view of heaven that is something like, I go to heaven, I think I get assigned a cloud and a harp, and then I play some song forever and ever, that doesn't sound like heaven to me, nor does it square with the scriptures. Guys, I am telling you, Heaven is going to be a mind blow. And not all at once. I used to think that. Oh, heaven's going to be kind of like the fireworks just hit the end finale. You know what I mean? Where they're all going off. Like heaven is going to be stepping in and seeing fireworks. Go, is that it? Is heaven like just an unbelievable blast of joy and pleasure followed by an eternity of boredom? No. No, the Bible talks about heaven being for ages, plural, and ages. These are eons, epics of time, being one more, one more, one more, one more, forever and ever greater demonstrations of the grace of God. Your pleasure will know no end, and it will only grow and expand your enjoyment of God's grace. I'm telling you, yes, Abraham was rich. That's awesome. Yes, Abraham was blessed. Great. It is nothing compared to the treasure we have in Christ. And now it is Abraham's through faith as well. Guess that blessing that was his, it is ours in Christ also. But get this, that faith in the future, we're soon about to see it motivate his actions. We talked about land, descendants, and blessings. I went in reverse order. Blessings, okay, you get a sense of that. We talked a lot about that. Descendants, well... He's not like the Guinness World Book, you know, like, like record holders. You don't have like 46. You got one. But guess what, Abraham? It's a start. <laughs> God promised you you'd be a great nation. Got to start somewhere. So he finally has Isaac, right? Just a start. But it's the land. It's the land that he doesn't have. God promised him something he is not experiencing right now. And that's the part the heart goes to. What about this, God? I thought you'd follow through on this one. Where's the land? You said that you'd give me this land. I left my land. I don't even know where to bury my wife. I don't even have like a plot to plant like sweet potatoes. I got nothing here. I left what I had. You said I'd get a land. I got nothing. I want you to see... In this purchase of a burial plot, I want you to see faith expressing itself in action. What I mean is this. This wasn't just like, ah, you know, we don't cremate. We'll just, we'll bury, but where do I go around here? Where is there a cemetery? What does it cost? No, 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 no. Way more than that. This is from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. When Abraham bought this cave... He was renouncing Padan Aram, that is northwest Mesopotamia. He was renouncing his homeland when he bought that cave. And he was saying, where I came to, this is my new home. He was saying in that moment, God, I believe you gave me all this land. I'm not stealing it from anyone. I am paying but I am stepping into, though the smallest part of your provision of giving me that land, only a burial plot, a, a field with a cave on it, I am stepping on to the promise that you have for me and all my future descendants. In time, it will be all this land. For right now, 
I am beginning by faith to take hold of your promise. Because in that moment, he could have gone back home. He could have grabbed his life. That would have been common. You bury them wherever you call home. He could have just said, well, I got blessing out of it. I did get a descendant. Come on, Isaac, help me carry her. We're going back home. He, in that moment, was expressing faith in God's promises. And when his faith looked like the purchase of land, it demonstrated itself in that action. Guys, Joseph was just like that. Remember Joseph? This guy would come a lot of years later, like great-grandson or something like that of Abraham and Sarah. This guy, even when he died in Egypt, he got hauled off all the way to Egypt, a long way from this land. Even Joseph expressed faith in this promise. Listen to what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50. Joseph said, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you're to carry my bones up from here. Can you, has anyone ever said, promise me something, you'll carry my bones around for like the next 400 years? Like, Joseph said this, like, I know I got hauled off all the way over here to Egypt. I got hauled off. But you know what? I believe in what God said. Somehow, miracle upon miracle, we're going to get out of Egypt. And when we do, you haul my bones back and you plant my body back in that land because that's my home that I got pulled from. Even Joseph believed with faith in the future promises of God. I'm blown away by it. He calls that his home by faith. Can you just imagine like packing up the bags that night when they left Egypt? It's like the Passover came. They're all about ready to head on out of there. It's chaos. Hey, you got the food? Yeah, I got the cooler. You know, did you pack the clothes? Yeah, I got my toothbrush. You know, who's got Joseph's bones? Like, can you imagine like almost forgetting his bones? But no, they grabbed this guy's bones and hauled them. Guys, this is like 500 years later. Even Joseph died in faith looking forward to God's future provision. And it caused him to live differently. Guys, when Abraham bought that field, he was making a statement. He was saying that he's never going back. He's done. That life is over. And in finality, this is my home. I believe in God's promises. They're better than what I had behind me. Cortez was making a statement when he burned those boats. We're never going back. We believe, though, not a biblical account at all. The guy's just a money-hungry guy probably wanting gold. We believe we're moving forward, doing something bold as a statement. I'm not going back. This is our home now. We're moving forward. And guys, if I was able to just distill a thought that captures this story that's got me thinking for my life and for our church, here's the big idea I found myself musing on. Faith in God's promises for the future motivate present actions. Like faith in God's promises, that's what motivates present actions. If you believe that God is going to do something in the future, if he speaks about the future, if he makes promises about the future, if you believe it, your life will be different now. I promise you. You can always see faith. You know, faith, that kind of personal thing, you can always see it. That hidden thing in the heart, it's visible to everyone. 
You can always see faith in what someone thinks of their future based on how they're living right now. It's clear as day. It's not hard to see at all, is it? Does your present life, does my present life communicate faith in God's future promises? I, I, I thought, even as I mused on this, I thought, how I use dollars, how I use time. How I use my dollars, how I use my time. This is the stuff entrusted to me by God. This is the currency in which I deal with in life. How I use the money God gives me, how I use the time God gives me. That's the stuff you can see how I think about this life or the next life. If I think all my pleasure is to be found in this world, you will find me dropping it all here. If I think in faith that there is pleasure forevermore and the reward of God as soon as I get there, you will see me sending it ahead by generosity and service here. See, Abraham was in this life, but he was sinking forward. And he goes, we are planting here. We, we are stepping into trusting God's promises. And I'm saying, can we follow the example of his faith? Do we believe what Jesus said? Does, does our faith in God's future promises, does it motivate your giving? I'm not talking about, like, I met, like, new people here for the first time or people visiting. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about, like, if you have, like, a local church and you're like, no, this is my home church, has, has faith in God's promises, like, motivated your generosity towards God? Check out Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus said this so many years after Abraham's life. He said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does our money say about which life we're living for? Are we allowing our living to determine our giving, or is it flip-flopped? Our giving to determine our living. Like, what does it say? Like, the next stop. I find myself thinking about that because it's such a concrete way in which I express faith or not faith. And sometimes I need like a stimulus check or I need like certain money or whatever to just have myself wrestle with it in a fresh new way. Um, my girls aren't here right now, so it's fun to talk about them when they're not here. Um, I talk about them while they're here too, but I was pretty blown away by actually both of them. You know, Claire got to the end of her, um, towards the end of her sophomore year and she's been working hard. She's going to school hard and working hard. And I'm trying to cover like half. I'm doing halvesies with my girls. I'm trying to help them adult, you know. And so, uh, so I've been trying to go in on, on half their expenses. And, and I promised them that also with their first car. Whatever first car they buy, I try and do half of it. And so I was doing that. And I was working my plan. While, and, and Claire's just kind of just grinding it out at work and picking up a second job and all this kind of stuff. And in the midst of that, out of nowhere... And I was really proud of her. I mean, for the decision she's making, she's a great giver to the church, all the stuff. I mean, she's a college student. She has every reason to go, oh, I'm just in college. I mean, being generous. And in the midst of that, she gets a scholarship for like several thousand dollars. I don't know, it was a couple thousand or a few thousand. I was like, wow. But her sister didn't get that scholarship. And her sister's smart too, you know, but I don't know. It just didn't come to her. So Claire's like, look at this money. Guys, her first, I mean, with excitement, she couldn't wait to get her first job anyways because she could start giving to this work 
But now she just had a lump sum. What do you do when you get the next bit of money? I'm like, a stimulus check, I already got it spent. Not Claire. It's like, well, I can give to this. I can give to Salt Church. I can get, and then she does this. And I was like, oh my word. Then she just goes, Ellie didn't get this money. I'm giving to Ellie. So she gives like hundreds of dollars to her sister. And I'm like, wow. So then Ellie, Ellie has been a hard, hard worker all her life. I mean, it's nuts. Ellie is, I'm like, wow, that's so kind what your sister, she was blown away. You want to know what the first things, one of the first things Ellie does? She gives some of that to her church and she says, dad, I just haven't been able to because I've been working so hard with nursing school. I haven't had an extra, I haven't had a job for a while. Just, I wasn't able to. And I'm like, oh my word. I have, I can make up reasons why you probably just shouldn't. Just keep it. My word, you know. You're just struggling so hard in this. And she's like, the impulse of their hearts were like, it just showed that it's not all their joys in this life. Now, here's what's interesting. You look at that passage. Is Jesus trying to rip people off or trying to bless them? Do not lay up or store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Moth, rust, vermin, whatever. It's going to get destroyed. Jesus is trying to invite us forward. Oh, but let's store up treasure in heaven. See, moth, rust, that can't destroy that. Thieves can't break in and steal. And then this. Wherever your treasure is, that's where you're going to find your heart. Wherever those dollars go, that's where you find your heart. And guys, I find that true in my own life. Like whatever I treasure most, that's where my heart is also. And I don't know about you, but I have had to learn sometimes to go, God, I believe in your promises. It's hard because I don't feel, well, I don't feel a lot of things, but I don't feel motivated to do things you'd want me to do. And sometimes, tell me if this is true you, my actions precede my emotions. I wake up in the morning, guess what? Don't feel like reading my Bible. I know, I'm a Christian. I should, I'm a pastor. I probably should. Don't feel like it. I feel like drinking my coffee. I don't feel like reading my Bible. And sometimes I have to go like this. <clears throat> Get over here. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> and then, then I start walking, and then I start running, and then there's joy in God. You know, sometimes I just don't feel like praying. It takes time. It's hard. It's hard to concentrate. Sometimes praying is like... Get over here. You know, it's like sometimes I don't feel like going on a date with my wife. I don't. I love her. It's great. I'm like, Mother's Day, are you kidding me? Is that coming again? You know, and then soon I start walking and soon I'm like, you know what Jenny would like? And then it gets exciting as I get going. Most things in my life God wants me to do, including my giving, are like that. Oh, I can think of a hundred things to do with this. And I go, and where my treasure is, my heart follows it. And I catch up with those decisions. Guys, I'm telling you, God's blessing is on that. How do you handle your time? I, I found not just with finances, but time. Let me put it this way in a question. Does your faith in God's future promises motivate your use of time? How you use your time? I don't feel like talking to unbelievers about Jesus. I already have a lot of Christian friends I already like. Glad I got in. Glad someone shared with me. Oh. 
calling that guy named Justin. Uh, how do I even find his phone number? He's the world of beer guy who serves me my lunch on Mondays. The burgers are really great, but he's kind and I should reach out to him. Oh, he needs a truck to move his couch so he can move in with his girlfriend, which I don't believe in that at all, but he needs Jesus. And I know where there's a white church truck. I don't want to. Actually, I'd rather take a nap right now. All my friends are taking a nap right now. It's Sunday afternoon. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? And then soon, I'm reaching out to my friend, Justin, and his girlfriend, Maddie, who just don't know Jesus yet. And you could not have gotten a text that made you feel more appreciated than the one he sent me because I took time just to move a washer and a dryer to help him. But you know what? In time, I hope to get to know him more and share Jesus with him. And what I don't feel like doing with my time and reaching out to the next neighbor, guys, reaching out to people, you know what? What I found, it takes time. And I'm pretty stingy with it. Honestly, maybe easier for me to write the check, fire the Venmo, then go, what do you need? How do I reach this neighborhood? It's gonna take time. Eh, probably need to cook some food. Probably need to get in some lives. Guys, sometimes the heart follows the action. But for sure, if our faith is in the future reward of God, the joy of God entering into his work and the eternal pleasure that comes, I'm telling you, it will be well worth it. Guys, faith in God's promises for the future, it motivates our present actions. It did for Abraham, it will for us. And guess what? It did for Jesus as well. Do you remember Jesus who lived and lived so hard. He left the pleasure of heaven, eternal joy in heaven, to be buried into a feeding trough. That's right, an animal trough where they fed animals with, to endure the kind of life he did. And then focusing on, on the end of his life, oh, to be whipped, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be treated that way, and eventually crucified. Yet the scripture says about Jesus that all those actions for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God for the pleasure of honoring his Father, for the joy of worship forevermore, for the delight in saving souls. He was able to endure all that suffering for the joy set before him. I'm telling you, even Jesus sets a model for us that if we have faith in the future promises and blessing and treasure of God, it will in this lifetime motivate us for how we live and give and sacrifice. Faith looks like something. What's your next step? What's the next step Jesus wants of us? Don't think I'm trying to rip you off and guilt you. I'm inviting you towards the blessing of God. Because I find that people who make steps that direction, though it's hard maybe at first, <laughs> They're the happy ones. Take their masks off, they're smiling. They're finally living because they're not gripped by the lies of this world. I'll end with a story I'm reading. Finally picked up a book that I've recommended to everyone except I haven't read it. That's called Hypocrisy, by the way. <laughs> it's a story of Jim Elliott. It's called um, Through Gates of Splendor. 
his wife's accounting of his life, Jim Elliott and four other men and their wives and a couple small children headed to uh, uh, Ecuador, I think is where the Aukin Indians are. I'm not all the way through the book, but I know the story. And they began trying to reach a primitive tribe known just for how far they were from the gospel. These men and women and children would live against maybe the advice of a lot of people back in the States that said, live easier than this for the sake of reaching these lost people. I've got a picture of, you can see Jim Elliott and some others, they would fly this plane in and finally make contact after exchanging gifts from a distance with this people. They would land that plane on a shore and reach out to this people. It was in landing that plane and beginning to communicate trying to bring the gospel to these people. In that process, they were misunderstood by someone, and that sparked kind of an outrage, and these people came on out to that shore along that little strip of river, and all five of these men in the 1950s were brutally speared to death. Their blood flowed, their lives ended on that beach. Their wives, instead of being embittered for a lifetime, and instead of leading their kids to be embittered for a lifetime against God who allows such terrible things to happen, their wives continued the mission forward, and their wives would be the ones who would end up bringing the gospel in and bringing conversion to the Aukin Indians. In fact, in time, it would be Nate Saint's son even, one of the kids of the martyred missionary, the martyred missionary pilot, I think, he would end up being baptized by one of the men who possibly was the one who killed his own father. A story of redemption, a story of forgiveness, a story of people who are treasuring heaven all the more. It was Jim Elliott who years ago penned this line and it captures our message. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You are no fool when in this life you freely give up what you can't keep. Oh, to gain what you cannot lose. Let's live like that. Let me pray.